Hello, this is Sasha with Old Ute Radio. Apparently our dad system didn't record the first minute and a half, two minutes of our interview with Dr. Kim Madgen. So, I have to give an introduction. Dr. Mangan is a journalism professor here at the U. She's amazing. The start of the show, you will be hearing me thank her for encouraging me not to give up on my studies and to pursue a career in journalism. So that is where we start, and we apologize for not having the introduction. So thanks for listening. Enjoy. We are OU Radio. It made me uh, think about my life and what I want to do, so yeah. I just wanted to say thank you. And I appreciate I'm that. grateful thank that you. you joined our show today. It's my pleasure. So you're a journalist by trade. I am. Yes, and a historian. I am. How and why did you get into journalism? <laughs> well, um, when I was an undergraduate, I just loved to write, uh -huh. and I loved reporting, and I worked for two student newspapers when I was an undergraduate. Uh -huh. And um, at that time, didn't really know what I wanted to do with journalism, but I knew I wanted to write and um, be involved in the business somehow, some way. And what I ended up doing um, kind of is a variety of different things. I mean, I've dabbled over the last 25 years in everything from freelance travel writing to doing some freelance food writing, working as a managing editor at a variety of publications, um, doing a little bit of PR along the way, doing some company newsletters, and then uh, sort of fell into being a PhD. Yeah. From Oregon, right? From the Oregon. The Mighty Ducks. Yeah, absolutely. So you Until back last weekend. <laughs> 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 we won't talk about that. <laughs> so you're not an editor at the Tribune. You're not in broadcast television. Correct. You're a professor. Correct. Why? Well, as I say, I really just kind of fell into it. If you had asked me... 20 years ago, would I be sitting here today? I would have said absolutely not. Um, I had I had always thought about getting my master's degree, mm -hmm. but I had never, ever in a million years thought about going on for a PhD. I had never thought about being a professor. I was content writing. I loved writing. I uh, loved what I was doing at the time. But um, I was working at the University of Oregon doing community outreach for them in 19... 98, 1999, somewhere around there, and um, working with the president of the university and working on their speakers bureau for faculty and, you know, just really enjoying what I was doing and learned that one of the benefits for being an employee at the UO was to take classes at a ridiculously reduced rate. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, just Pennies incredibly cheap. What's that? Pennies on the dollar. Yeah, seriously, it was so cheap at the time, and so I'd always thought about getting my master's, and I thought, wow, this is just a terrific opportunity, you know, to be able to work full-time and to squeeze a class in here and there, and about a year into the program, I discovered that I really loved doing research, and it was another way for me to explore writing and research and things that I didn't know about and new topics and new people, and and everything sort of came together at that point, and then I was invited to join the doctoral program before I had completed my master's degree. So technically I don't have a master's even though mm -hmm. I had completed everything but the thesis. So I jumped up into the doctoral program and the rest sort of is history, no pun intended. And that's a difficult transition because you grew up writing for the AP Style Guide and then you had to go into academic 
writing and scholarship. That, that's a great point, yeah. Um, I have to be versed now in two different writing styles. So for example, when I teach journalism, um, I have to teach Associated Press style oh. and the way that most journalists still today craft their stories, right? As you know, you have a, a large style book mm -hmm. and there are rules and regulations for how you craft your story, how you put together you know, a comma before an and or not, or how you do an, a, an abbreviation or not, or whatever the case may be. And so then, yes, in my academic writing, I use what's called Chicago style. Mm -hmm. Historians typically use this particular style of writing, and so I'm always kind of jumping between the two, depending on whether I'm doing popular writing, journalism writing, or academic writing. Because I know that there's a lot of students that are forced on campus to write in that Chicago academic style. Mm -hmm. And then if you're a communication student, you're also taught to understand or at least start learning the process for writing AP. Mm -hmm. I noticed as a student it was very difficult to go back and forth and that you often get caught up with deduction of points on essays, not so much for your content, but because it's not the right. Right. Do you have suggestions for students on how to separate the writing styles and how to bring them together? Yeah, so what I do, because they are in some ways similar and in some ways very, very different, as you say. So I have two manuals. I have the AP style manual and then I have my Chicago style manual. I have kind of a condensed version of it. But what I do is I use those little post-it flags. Mm -hmm. And so I flag the things that I use most often. So in AP, it might be ages or dimensions or time of day, time elements, street addresses, those kinds of mm -hmm. things that you typically refer to. So I have my book bookmarked, essentially. And I'll do the same thing then in the Chicago style book, the things that I use most often. You know, do I add a comma before the word junior, you know, some Joe Smith Jr., for example. All those kinds of things that, again, I go to, and that way I don't have to remember all those things, but I do remember, oh yeah, there is a rule for that, and I can quickly flip to it. And I think a lot of it is just sort of training yourself to question everything. Is this the correct way to write it, or do I need to look it up rather than assuming? And of course, with journalism, you should never assume anything anyway. So it kind of goes hand in hand with that rigorous practice involved in being a journalist. And then, of course, with being a historian, um, research is very, very rigorous. And it goes along with that, too, to, to demonstrate your care and um, thoughtfulness in what you do and how you do it. Has writing declined in American, the, the value of writing? the ability to write very well. Has it declined as society? That's a great question. I mean, anecdotally, I would say yes. Um, I mean, there still are great writers out there, but I think that technology has really short, shortcutted everything, mm -hmm. that, um, caused a shortcut. You know, we, we tend to abbreviate emails. We tend to use Twitter, which is abbreviated. We tend to, um, you know, have our own sort of shorthand for things, which can be great if you're taking notes, but if you're trying to communicate, it's difficult to then get back into the habit of writing complete sentences, writing complete paragraphs, writing a complete thought. Um, I see a lot of students who really have trouble organizing their thoughts, um, coming up with a focus, um, whether it's for a research project or for a journalism story. They have trouble organizing their thoughts into a coherent narrative. Um, and I think, again, anecdotally speaking from my observations, it's Part of it may be because we don't spend a lot of time on writing anymore. You know, everything's short and quick and we don't spend time writing or revising. Is that a breakdown in the elementary levels and the high school levels? Or is it just a simply simple carelessness from the students themselves? 
You know, it's it's probably a little bit of everything. I mean, I don't want to slam teachers sure. because mm -hmm. I am a teacher and I know how difficult and challenging it is and how many things you have to do in any given day in any given lesson plan. But I mean, certainly all of this starts at the elementary school level, right? I mean, you know, students are there to learn certain skills, but if you have one teacher for X number of students and that student, that teacher can't give one-on-one -on -one help, and if they don't get perhaps some extra help at home and maybe they're not reading a lot, and so they're absorbing both, you know, written thoughts as well as trying to communicate on paper or on computer as it were today, um, you know, all of that starts there. And so by the time students come to college, we expect them to be very prepared to undertake research and to write papers and to write organized um, essays, things like that, and that's not always the case. And so sort of the frustration at the college level then is that we have to do some certain amount of remedial instruction mm -hmm. to get students up to a certain level. And, and then the other part of the equation, I think, is that if a student realizes that she or he may be a little weaker at some of these areas, the burden should be back on the student to try to self-educate or to get counseling or to go to the writing center um, at Marriott or things like that. But I'm not seeing a lot of that drive to want to improve one's skills. And that's where kids start to drop out or get a case of the, I don't care anymore yeah. because there is that catch up level. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's frustrating, certainly. You know, when you feel like, you kind of feel like you're lost, right? Your peers are maybe performing at one level and maybe you're performing at a different level. Certainly not everybody is a great writer. I mean, I fully understand that, mm -hmm. right? Everybody is skilled at different things, but communication is an essential part of any job that you do. Doesn't mean that you have to write a 15 page paper, but you need to be able to communicate somehow, some way with customers or clients or your boss or colleagues or whatever the case may be. So a certain degree of good polished writing is, is necessary. When I took a class with you, I guess this was two semesters ago, you told me that you routinely work 100 hour work weeks. And I've learned, especially in media, that it's, if you're gonna work at ABC, if you're going to be a producer or a director in television or if you're going to be a journalist in print, you're, you're doing 12, 15-hour days. Yeah. If you're going to be successful in any corporation, you're working a lot. How does a student develop a great work ethic? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think that part of it probably is just innate. You know, you're, you're born with certain characteristics. Um, responsibilities, um, ideals about yourself, ideals about what you want to be, who you want to be, how you want to behave as a person. Some of it probably is taught in school, in church, um, at home, you know, by friends, whatever the case may be. But I mean, certainly it's something that can be can be cultivated as well, you know, and I think that if you want to succeed at something, you have to invest yourself in that task, whether it be getting the training or education or a combination thereof. and it's very rare these days to find a job that's eight to five and you walk away from it at the end of the day. Is that, do you think that the demand that our society puts on the employee, does that affect then their children and, this, and their kids getting a great education and developing that work ethic? Because if mom and dad come back from 15 hour days, five, six days a week, I'm a, I'm a dad. It, it's tough to it is. rebuild that energy for your little ones. Yeah, it's very, very difficult. And, you know, sometimes people talk about the work-life balance, mm -hmm. 
right? And, and trying to find that balance, finding a, a career that you love and that you're passionate about, um, that you feel is making a difference in somehow, some way. Um, and then, of course, finding that, that life balance, right? Finding a partner that you're happy with, finding a, a home that you're satisfied in, you know, having a family if you choose to do that. And it is, it's extraordinarily difficult to balance that. I mean, jobs take a lot of energy. Children take a lot of energy. Keeping up the house takes energy. You know, going grocery shopping. All of those things, you know, take a great amount of energy. And I think I've particularly had a very difficult time finding that balance, you know, in part because of the job, the demands of the job. Um, I finally have been promoted with tenure now, which means that I don't have to work quite as hard as I did. Thank you. But but nonetheless, I mean, there still are periods where, you know, I work and work and work, and it's it's really, really challenging. I, I just don't know how to find the answer to that. Um, if you find it, let me know. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, yeah. <laughs> I was yeah. hoping you had it for me. <laughs> I don't have the answer, unfortunately. <laughs> what do you think, to switch gears a little bit, what do you think the state of media is and journalism in this country where, where, where are we at right now before we delve into that? Yeah, it's, it's good and it's bad. It's bad um, because media are dying, newspapers are dying, um, or they're shifting on print, I mean online only, or they're trying to do some combination of printing and online. Um, others, um, such as the Rocky Mountain News, just have gone out of business altogether. On the other hand, it, it's, a, it's a period of tremendous opportunity. There are newspapers being formed. Community journalism is alive while kicking really a growth area. Um, diversity is gonna be playing an increasingly important role in journalism. Um, I think the, the ability to speak other languages is gonna become really, really important. And then there are new jobs being created. So the traditional journalists, the traditional print newspaper journalist who only came to work and wrote stories for the newspaper may be changing, but there are new jobs where um, there's more creativity. For example, the reporter may also be able to put together a slideshow with his or her work, or may be able to be more creative and work with a team at an online newspaper publishing um, video and audio and photographs and data sets and you know interactive components. Um, social media manager is a career that certainly didn't exist a few years ago. Um, information graphics, you know, is an area that really didn't exist a few years ago. So it's 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 a very challenging, interesting time. I'm very excited about it, um, and it, it's an area actually I could talk about forever. I'm really interested in this area. So for the young person that like you when you were young that loves to write, loves to create a picture or tell a story of an event, mm -hmm. they can still do that. It's going to be here. It's not going away. Absolutely. You know, and, and if anything, it's gotten better because I was very limited. I mean, when I started, we were literally using an X-Acto knife to put things together, mm -hmm. right? I mean, now, I mean, think about the technology that's available on your computer. You know, I mean, the computer is not the size of this room anymore, mm -hmm. right? I mean, you've got a laptop in front of you. You've got a smartphone in front of you. Yeah. That's pretty much all you need, right? You've got the applications. You've got the tools. You've got the knowledge, the yeah. skills, the abilities. If you wanted to, you could launch an online newspaper tomorrow. Well, that's that really creates a whole new paradigm for do, do you think that that's dangerous where you have so many freelance journalists that have 
that's kind of side skirt truth or throw expletives into their stories and have yeah. no rule have yeah. you know yeah and that's the again yes anybody can start his or her own publication or they can start a podcast or you know a blog site or whatever they want to do but i think with that comes responsibility both in terms of the producer and the person who reads or listens or reviews that content, listens to that or views that content, right? So you have a, a burden and a responsibility if you're going to call yourself a journalist to be putting things online that are accurate, credible, truthful, factual, all those sorts of things that you learned in class, mm -hmm. right? But, but by the same token, the burden is also on the consumer. Just because you put something online and I read it, should I be gullible? Should I read everything? Should I believe everything? Or should I be a critical media consumer? And I think that, that we need to teach that perhaps more at maybe even the under, uh, n not just the undergraduate level, but maybe you know in junior high, high school, you know, so that students coming into college then are already thinking really critically about what they read and see and hear and don't, don't believe everything, right? And, and I think also with that comes the responsibility of consulting multiple media sources, which few people do, in part because we have, don't have a lot of time to be doing that, but really to be a, a true media consumer and a true citizen of your community or your democracy, you should be consulting a variety of sources, not just the ones you agree with, but maybe some that are a little uncomfortable for you or maybe some that are way outside your, your spectrum of beliefs or comfort zone or whatever the case may be but again not many people do that you know we tend to gravitate toward the things that we agree with mm -hmm. and again you know it's nice to have a, a an opposing point of view sometimes that's what i really enjoyed about doing your class with voices of utah is during my semester with you we covered the lgbt beat mm -hmm. and the majority of our class, I think, was very uncomfortable at the start of it mm -hmm. because it is a difficult question. And, mm -hmm. and you said a phrase that never left my head. And it said, if you can't objectively cover this issue, you have no right or business to be a journalist. True. So, and a journalist's uh, goal or duty is to fight for the less fortunate in their community. Is that correct? Or at least be a, an objective window yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, it certainly be an objective storyteller. Mm -hmm. And I think what happens is that too many journalists, because of time constraints, because of changes in the, in the industry, in the business model, they're asked to do more and more. And what happens is you develop a set sort of sources, I guess, right? You know, you have the people, the go-to people that you're always going to consult. And they may look like you or they may think like you. You may not even be aware of it. Um, and I think that journalists could probably do a much better job thinking about other story ideas, thinking about other people, thinking about other voices, thinking about um, issues that are not being covered in the community. Think about other ways to look at something. You know, think about all the different stakeholders in an issue. Um, one exercise that my students and I did this semester was to talk about the various streetcar and trolley lines that are being either tested as we sit here now or are planned in the community along 11th East. and. You know, who else is affected, right? You know, we tend to think immediately of business owners and the government. Well, who else? You know, it might be homeowners, it might be children, it might be some of the nonprofit organizations that are along that street. You know, it, when you start thinking 
sort of outside the proverbial box, I think that journalism becomes richer. And I think that journalists become richer for the experience too because they meet so many more people and hear so many more interesting stories. And it can, um, I think, make the, make not, not just the, uh, the product better, whether it's an online product or a print product, but I think it makes our community better. It makes it richer because we are hearing from more people, more sources, and we're hearing about more topics that might have gone unremarked. What problems do journalism journalists have because I noticed when I was in newsrooms or I, I've always read the newspaper and I see a lot of you know it's like when Tribune got purchased last month or yeah, at least it became official I started noticing that a lot of their content now became pop culture and the latest trending rap song or the Kardashians are famous that doesn't seem like it belongs in journalism and, yeah. and in my head I think I'm sure the journalists would rather be writing about heroin or, <laughs> or uh, poverty or systemic long generational yeah. poverty. Yeah. It, it, do you see that there's a problem there? Yeah, I think, I think what some news outlets are still trying to do is to try to figure out their audiences. No longer is it just an audience, it's multiple audiences and trying to figure out what people want what they need, which may not be what they want, and then figuring out where they're getting their news, if they're getting it at all. Right? A lot of my students don't read any sort of news, print or otherwise. It stuns me. Yeah, it's it is. It's alarming. Um, but I think that, you know, there there still is this struggle to figure out. Okay, if we're going to be the Salt Lake Tribune, for example, and now we've just lost a quarter of our workforce, what are we going to do, and how are we going to do it? And about a oh, month and a half or two months ago now, right after the, the last round of significant layoffs, I participated in a sort of a roundtable conversation on Doug Fabrizio, Fabrizio's show Radio West on KUER. And, and Terry Orm, the new um, publisher, was on. And some of the reporters who were let go were on. And you know we were trying to sort of talk about, well, what does this all mean? And I think that was one of the questions that you had asked me in advance is, you know, what does this mean? And, Part of it means figuring out what to do with fewer resources. Part of it means do we provide the sort of content, content that you mentioned, which is more of the pop culture, or do we make that more of a blog? Um, do we make the newspaper community only, which is still kind of my argument that I don't need the Tribune to tell me what's going on nationally, unless it affects me here living in Salt Lake City, nor do I need it, need it to tell me what's going on internationally because by the time I get that news from the Tribune, the news has already happened, right? I've already gotten it from the New York Times, or I've already gotten it from NPR, or I've already gotten it from some other news source. The Tribune is, is typically behind the curve, so I don't need them to be telling me necessarily the news anymore. But, but it's difficult to get journalists to, to think outside that box, right? We're so trained to say, I'm writing a print story and it's gonna come out tomorrow morning in the paper. Even if I've already published it online, it's still coming out tomorrow morning in the paper. But by the time I'm reading it at my kitchen table, it's old news. And so, you know, part of I think what you're getting at is just that constant tension and struggle within financial constraints and time constraints. How do we get all this sorted out and how do you do it while you're running 
from story to story and trying to get everything accomplished on what's now a 24-7 news cycle when it used to be you know, part of the day news cycle because you were aiming for an afternoon edition or you were aiming for a midnight deadline to try to get out the morning paper or something like that. Technically, we should be hiring more people yes. because of this 24-7 cycle but we're not we're doing it with fewer people and so there's a, there's a need to sort of hunker down and, and decide what is the best use of re resources is it covering kardashian and her latest exploits or is it covering maybe a longer form story investigative story as you alluded to that might be happening in salt lake city or utah was media better when it was a story was allowed to breathe when it was allowed to mature for that 24 hours because I, I think it was. I, I thought the writing was better when I was younger. Yeah. I think that's a great observation. I think just the rush to get the content out and the fact that you don't have a lot of time to do sourcing. So again, that speaks to, are you going to do a safe topic? Are you going to consult the same sources that you know you can get on a telephone right away? Right? So it, it does. I think it speaks to maybe uh, some errors slipping in, some perhaps some factual errors just because you're hurried. Um, certainly the copy editing is not what it used to be because everything is so quick. Everything just needs to be rethought and it's unfortunate that we can't just sort of take a two week break, <laughs> yeah. you know, and think about everything and then regroup and come back bigger, stronger than ever. But we're just trying to figure all this out in, in the process. And um, some, some things are working, some experiments are working, and some aren't. Um, again, I think that that's the exciting part of it, is that we are at least trying to innovate. We are trying to figure out what we need to do. And some organizations are able to sort of take that plunge, and others are not. But at the end of the day, if we don't have journalists doing their job and reporting on the government and reporting on its community, I think us as a society, we're, we're that idea of freedom is compromised in quite a severe way. Absolutely. And it seems to me that a lot of these major conglomerate news factories don't think that way. Or yeah. at least, at least I know that they do privately, and I know that they've spent their entire lives studying this and living it and giving up, you know, money and mm -hmm. all types of things. But they're not relaying that to their reader or their audience that they they dumb it down so much yeah. that I think it's excessive yeah it's again it's it's so difficult to to strike that balance um, I know Terry Orm at the Tribune is talking about trying to really focus on local good investigative watchdog journalism I'm not sure how many people in Salt Lake City care and I think that that's the problem, you know, is that a lot of consumers have really shifted toward the idea that if I want news, I can get it online for free. And there's not a solid understanding of what that quote, free, unquote, means, right? Somebody somewhere has produced that news. Mm -hmm. Odds are someone, a reporter, a credible reporter who's received training to do that job has created that content and odds are that content is being shared, passed along, um, it's being aggregated, somehow, some way, it's, it's being disseminated. And I, unfortunately, I think that news media waited too long to figure out that they were giving the product away for free. And now people are just too used to getting it for free. Mm -hmm. It's too difficult to sort of get the horse, you know, back in the proverbial corral. And the other thing too is that there needs to be a considerable 
amount of education done to, to tell consumers, okay, this is how you're getting your news. It's not free. You know, if you want this good news that you are talking about, we have to, to pony up for that. Again, to keep the horse metaphor going, we have to we have to fund it somehow, some way. So does that mean that we're going to erect paywalls? Does that mean we're going to go to a nonprofit sort of radio model, you know, where it, it relies on a couple of fund drives a year and it relies on people to say, yes, this matters to me. I want to support it. Mm -hmm. um, is it a tax? Sort of like the UK system where people are taxed on, you know, their media use, their television receiver, whatever. Um, so it's, again, that's kind of an interesting, you know, business model. If a student wants to major in something, now's the time to be majoring in business models and to be helping news outlets figure out how to make money by putting content online. Uh, you told me that you had no interest in going into television as a younger person. Mm -hmm. Why? I, I don't know that it ever even occurred to me. I just, I loved writing mm -hmm. um, and just always saw myself as, you know, doing something exotic like travel writing or food writing or something like that. And, you know, I did, did quite a bit of that. I was published in a number of different newspapers and magazines, but then I sort of ended up gravitating toward working as a managing editor for smaller publications. And I really liked that because it was sort of the early version of what journalists get to do now where I was... By working at a smaller publication, I was able to do a lot of things. I could do a little bit of writing. I could work with interns. I could work with freelancers. I could um, help steer the content. Um, I could do some photography if I wanted to. I could do the layout and design and be a little bit more creative. So it, it for me, it, it was a really good fit, and it fit well. I had a young child at the time, and for me, it was just a great fit for family life, trying to get that work-life balance that um, probably I was more successful at, actually. Um, then, because I did prioritize my family than I have been lately. Do you, when you see these big, as you said, opportunities in media mm -hmm. with the Tribune and all these other newspapers trying to reinvent themselves, is there that part in your brain that says, hey, I should be working with them? Because <sighs> yeah. I know you got to have it in your you know, it's funny, a couple of years ago, um, I was fortunate to get a fellowship at the Chicago Tribune, yeah. and I, I, I talked a lot about that in your class, and I got to spend two weeks in Chicago, which was amazing in and of itself, but I got to spend two weeks at the Tribune, you know, really shadowing the reporters and the editors and learning a lot about what they were doing in terms of really basically rebranding themselves, um, really doing a, a, an amazing job educating um, the public about who they are, what they are, and why their work matters, really reaching out to consumers and audiences. And um, ever since then, I, I really have been on this sort of soapbox. You know, I just find the business model and what's going on in journalism right now so fascinating because people say that journalism is dying. I mean, you'll hear that so often, and that's so not true. Newspapers may be dying, and if they die, I will grieve because <laughs> as a journalism historian, yeah. I look to old newspapers, and I don't know what historians will be studying in 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now because we won't have newspapers to study. That's, that's a whole other hour-long radio program. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, but I, th I think that there are so many opportunities now. I, I really I wish I were coming into journalism now, you know, as a 20, 25-year-old. Um, I just think it's an amazing time. And at the Tribune, every, every editor that I talked to said, yeah, we're looking to the next generation to be creative, to help sustain journalism, and to help figure out these complex business models. 
And it's just, it's a, it's a ripe time for someone who is passionate as you are about journalism, good journalism and how to do it effectively. Yeah, I, I, sh I sh when I was at ABC, I s you see a lot of these young kids that are really hungry and wanna, you know, wanna be good at their craft. And mm -hmm. that's encouraging because as a viewer, you don't get to see the behind the scenes. Yeah. And I don't get to see the behind the scenes at the Tribune or any of these other places. And you just, I just always wonder in the back of my head is, are they really willing to fight? Because you don't, s you, you can find the small backstories in like a Katrina event, mm -hmm. but they're not pedestaled into the national m mainstream. So I always think, wow, why are they, why is this not being covered? There's still people living in camps. There's still people yeah. that, can't get their reimbursed for their insurance on their lost house and yeah, yeah. you just don't see it and I always wondered to myself why is that the case and it might be finances just being able to have a reporter out there for six months. That's just it you know to, to commit to following a story for longer than a day or two or maybe even a week I mean it does it starts to then add up financially I mean the the publisher has to start figuring out does this make dollars and cents mm -hmm. really you know is it worth it to let the reporter do this investigative journalism which is something that that newspapers can do very well and they've got the space to be able to do a multi-part investigative report i mean terry orm keeps talking about that the tribune will continue to be a watchdog newspaper and how important it is to have that counterpoint to the deseret news mm -hmm. um, but it does, it takes time, it takes resources. Um, that reporter then is not doing something else that she or he could be doing. Some publications like the Chicago Tribune, they've kind of regrouped and they've said, you know what, we really got our start by doing that investigative journalism, so that's what we're gonna continue to do. That's our focus, that's our strength. We're gonna do that and you know, see sort of what happens along the way and have other reporters maybe just pushing content onto the web. But um, it, it is, everything comes down to dollars and cents. And that's not to say that it hasn't always done that in the media, but I think in some ways it's becoming even more critical because you have to produce something for online and how are you gonna monetize that? And the advertising still hasn't followed you know, to the online, online product. So unless people are willing to pay for that product, that's where it gets really into this this sort of quandary of what's going to happen and how it's going to happen. So as we wrap up here, mm -hmm. this hour flew by, what advice do you have for students? For We have a lot of non-student listeners. Uh, what would you give to our audience in terms of how do you be successful? Just what, what are so just an outline of how to succeed? Well, I think I think one word, preparation. Um, I think no matter what you want to do, you need to prepare. Um, that might mean a college degree. It might not mean a college degree. It might mean some sort of other vocational training. Um, it might mean having an internship. It might mean having two or three internships. Um, it might mean joining professional organizations. It might mean um, joining various networks. Um, so for example, LinkedIn has various networks now. Facebook has various networks now. Um, it might mean becoming really savvy um, in skills such as social media. 
even if you don't go into journalism, you need to brand yourself somehow, some way. So it might mean learning how to create a, a website for yourself or for your business. Um, it might mean knowing how to create a Facebook page for yourself or your business. Uh, it might mean learning how to use Twitter effectively, again, to, to push things on Twitter. But I think it ultimately comes down to preparation and what skills, knowledge, abilities do you need to then go forward with whatever career you've chosen. For the person that has fear or anxiety to reach their goals, to reach mm -hmm. those little kid dreams, mm -hmm. what would you say to them? Well, again, I think it comes down to preparation, yeah. right? I mean, it, it's great to want to end up at, you know, whatever, 42 steps down the road, but that's scary, right? When you think about that end product, like, oh my gosh, how am I going to get there? And it can be overwhelming. So again, if you start small, Think about what you need to do, but just, you know, one step at a time. Get the education, get the training, meet people, network. I mean, networking is so important today, and it's so easy to do with things like LinkedIn and other, you know, online sites. But um, it, it just comes back, I think, to preparation and to not, not thinking too far ahead. Yes, you need to think, okay, if I want to be a brain surgeon, I have to do ABC to get there, but it also can be overwhelming if you think, oh my goodness, I have to do ABC and a whole lot more to get there. But everybody has to start somewhere gaining that knowledge, skill, ability, base, you know, that core set of things that will help you succeed. Uh, what classes are you teaching next semester? Next semester, I am teaching Voices of Utah. Mm -hmm. Um, COM 3660, and I'm teaching a graduate shadow class, communication history. It's 5630-6630. What's a shadow class? Um, it's where graduate students may sit in and take it at the 6,000 level. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I have master's students sit in on that class. And your communication history class, what do you kind of teach? What's the curriculum in that? Yeah, so I essentially start with the, the with Jamestown, so 1607, mm -hmm. and pretty much take it up to present day, but I r recognize that a lot of people find history really boring. I used to find history really boring. <laughs> um, a lot of times it was because we had to memorize dates, mm -hmm. and I know a few, like Jamestown was 1607, but beyond that, I don't <laughs> know many dates, and I'm not a stickler for dates. So I just, I really try to emphasize themes and concepts and a lot of issues about diversity and race and women and gender and economics and um, marginalized people and how they struggle to get their voices heard. And so I, I try to make it as interactive and interesting as I possibly can. I've compiled a, a reader. I don't use a textbook anymore because the textbooks all weighed about 50 pounds and just were like boring even for me to read. <laughs> couldn't, couldn't do it, so I figured if I can't do it, a 20-year-old can't do it. Um, so I just, I try to make it as interesting as possible, but I think that, again, part of the shared burden is on the student to find what he or she is interested in. There's got to be something, some part of history, right, where you think back to your childhood and you're like, oh my God, that was my favorite book, or that was my favorite movie, or that was my favorite, you know, trip ever. We got to see something with my family, right? All of us have some sort of historical memory that really excites us, and so... I hope that students can take this class and think about that, can think about what excited them at some point, because I know certainly what has excited me about history. I have leftover money in my budget from when I was here. I might have to take that class, as I long as you promise to beat me with a hammer on my grammar. <laughs> <laughs> I promise, our capstone project in there is just like Voices, you're gonna be publishing an encyclopedia article on, oh, a, wow. public, on a public website, so. Not Wikipedia. 
Uh, no, it's a. No. No. <laughs> you can do that right now. <laughs> no. It's called Utah Communication History Encyclopedia. I might have to do that. I would love to have you in that class. So you've you're a published author. Uh, I am. What are your books? Where yeah, I have I have one book out, and I'm just at the beginning steps of working on a second book. My first book was about a civil rights activist in Portland, Oregon, who um, had a newspaper called The Advocate mm-hmm. um, from 1912 until about 1936. Um, it actually was founded in about 1903 by her husband, Edward Kennedy. And so um, in the book, I look at the different ways that she advocated for the small African-American population in Portland and in Oregon. Um, She did some amazing things, not just with her weekly newspaper, but she did radio addresses such as this one. Um, She talked to high school and college students because she believed that she could influence people to start doing the right thing and to behaving the right way toward all people. Um, And she did a lot of public speaking, a lot of civic groups, fraternal groups, religious groups, um, did a lot of talking to the NAACP. and, um, And then the thing that I find perhaps the most interesting is she did interracial teas. So she had people over to her home in northwest Portland, sorry, northeast Portland, and she would have a a wide mixture of people. She would have white people and black people, Chinese people, people from Europe, visitors from all across the United States, anybody who happened to be in town. She would have different religions, I mean, all different kinds of things. Um, And she would just have these events where she would force people literally to interact with other people and to get to know one another because, yeah, she felt that if you knew someone that you couldn't dislike that person, right? You would find some sort of common ground. It's too easy to develop stereotypes if you never interact. And so, you know, if you think about it when you go to a party or something, right, you tend to mostly stick with the people that you know, right? Because that's Mm -hmm. your comfort zone. And she would separate people literally at her house. She would say, well, you two already know each other, so I want you to go sit over there and meet so-and-so, and and you're going to go over there and meet so-and-so. So I thought that those were really, really interesting um, events that she had where she was really, you know, sort of shaking things up. And What was the time frame of? She was there in the early 1900s, so 1912 to about 1936. Oh, so that was groundbreaking what she's doing. Very much so, yeah. Mixing of the races, yeah. you know, was, was pretty groundbreaking then. Yeah, yeah, she was a fascinating woman. What's the name of that book? Oh, my goodness. It's very long. <laughs> uh, it, it starts A Force for Change. Beatrice Morrow Kennedy and the struggle for civil rights in Oregon, 1912 to 1936. How do you fit that on the cover? <laughs> <laughs> Academics love colons. <laughs> Everything has to have a colon. <laughs> yeah, very, very long. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> well, we appreciate you stopping by. I wish uh, we could do this forever. It was wonderful. I had yeah. a great time. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. Wonderful questions. Yeah, thank you. And uh, is there, like, do you have an email or is there a way if, like, a, a broadcast student wanted to contact you? Absolutely, yeah. My office is in the southwest corner of Linko. It's 2854. And my email is kim.mangun, M-A-N-G-U-N, at utah.edu. Awesome, awesome. Sasha's You're on there. Twitter. Yeah. I yeah. am on Twitter. I'm following I'm people on LinkedIn. Like a bandit. <laughs> Me included. <laughs> I'm trying to get better at using it more often. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to follow you on Twitter, and maybe you'll follow me back. Nice, nice. Thank you. All right, thanks. Uh, Let's go to break. You want to throw it to the board, Johnny? Yep, I can do that. 
Hey, this is Bob Bedore with Quick Wits, and you're listening to KU Radio, the only real radio at the University of Utah. This is Chris Hollifield from the I Am Salt Lake podcast, and you're listening to KU Radio. Hello, alien warrior comedian here. You're listening to All Ute Radio. Hey, this is Matt Knutson, and if I sound familiar, it's because you're currently listening to my voice. You can find me also here on Old Ute Radio. My name is Brian Pope. You're listening to Old Ute Radio. What's up, boys? This is Zach Arthur from New School. You're listening to Old Ute Radio. Hey, guys, this is Dwayne Perkins, and you're listening to Old Ute Radio. You know it. Hey, Johnny McKeon here, and if you're interested in being a guest on Old Ute Radio with Johnny McKeon and Sasha Bloom, you should definitely hit us up at oldutradio at gmail.com. You can also hit me up on Twitter at Johnny McKeon, that's M-C-K-E-O-N. You could also hit up Sasha at Mr. Underscore Bloom, that's B-L-U-M-E. Like always, you can find us Wednesdays from 2 to 5 p.m. on KUradio.org. Turn my headphones up. Louder. Welcome back to Old Ute Radio. I'm Johnny McKeon. With me in studio, as always, my friend and yours, Sasha Bloom. My crush for Dr. Kim Magnin has taken itself to another height. Really? I thought she was fantastic today. Yeah, she was amazing. That was a great interview. Yeah. That was wonderful. Anytime someone can really break down journalism or media or that state of despair that i believe we're in in society yeah i really enjoy that type of conversation i am going to go to radio west and download that podcast nice because they po- they podcast all their stuff so do uh, they yeah k-u-e-r.org i think you'll find it somewhere there yeah that's true i you know i've been kind of behind on podcasts lately like i just haven't really been keeping up with them as often do you enjoy that no i don't like i used to listen to podcasts all day yeah just various. I had like about 20 podcasts in rotation. Mm-hmm. And it's just lately, I don't know, I've been kind of really trying to connect with myself more, kind of distract myself less, you know, kind of more tap into myself. So I've been, you know, kind of shying away from watching TV and, you know, uh, listening to podcasts and listening to and playing video games. Like I was trying to just kind of more get back to my old roots, you know. Detoxing from yeah. media. Yeah. Why? What, what brought that on? What did you know? Where were you going? Uh, you know, I started because, you know, I'm getting back into comedy, I'm getting back into writing, and the thing about joke writing as opposed to script writing is it's it's ten times more work. Like, to write a, to write stand-up is so much harder than writing either a sketch or, you know, a screenplay idea or if I have to write, help Sarah write some of her work. Like, it's very different. Like, because with stand-up, it's, it's to call it a conversation would be a lie because it's only one person talking. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So you have to... You have to be able to convey what you can get from a two-person conversation into one person. So I have to both ask the question and answer it at the same time. It's, it's, it's a lot trickier, and it just takes a lot more focus, a lot more attention. Um, there's a lot of structure to it that I have to follow and play into, you know, the setup, the punchline, you know, whether I'm going to do long form or short form, whether I'm going to do one line or if I'm going to tell a longer story. 
you have to assess and, you know, decide what you can do. And also you have to measure it against how much time you have. You know, like I have three minutes tonight, you know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I could do, you know, maybe two really long stories or I could do half a dozen one-liners. You know, you see, you have to choose and you have to kind of piece it all together. You have to piece together a set list, which is like a miniaturized version of an act. And within that set list, for me, it's the most organic when I could flow from one topic to another. So you also have to choose which topics to use because I have a huge – I use Evernote. It's this note-taking system. I have a huge Evernote just filled with jokes, and now it's just deciding which jokes go where. You can just talk that. about me for three minutes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to get booed. <laughs> but the well, audience is there to support you, sir. Yeah, that is true. <laughs> they're not there to support you, sir. So. <laughs> no, they're not. Yeah. So, you know, uh, I just, I'm trying to get back more. And also, I'm just coming to grips with a lot of personal issues I have. Like, with the idea of calling myself an artist or being one. Like, having to deal with... You're not doubting yourself. No, it's not doubting myself. It's just releasing myself. Allowing yourself... Yeah. yeah, to accept myself for who I am because I don't love anything more than stand up, and that scares the crap out of me. You don't love anything more than st- so. What's the yeah. problem? It's because I love it. It's so tough. It's so easy. It's really easy to go after something you hate and power through. I mean, you see it every day with kids in the wrong major, going after the wrong degree, but they bust their butt and they hustle at it. But it's when you have to go after something you love, it's so much scarier. It really is. And it's no, so, I agree with yeah, you. I yeah. agree with you. No, and, and so for me, I just, I've had to wear a lot of masks. I've had to wear a lot of hats. And I have to be true to myself. And sometimes it's hard to figure out who I am. Sometimes. I mean, I'm also, you know, coming off of being on Ritalin for the majority of my life, which has, like, disassociative side effects. Like, I have a hard time figuring out stuff I want. Like, small stuff, like... Sarah wants me to put together a Christmas list. I can't think of anything I want for Christmas. I can't. Not a teddy bear? No. Like, I just, I don't think of myself in that way. And now I, I like, one of the reasons why I started writing at the very beginning was to find out who I am. To find out what I care about. Like, when I journal and I blog and I write, like, I'm writing not just, you know, bits and stuff, but I'm also writing who I am. Like, what I think about. And then I have to go over those and read them and figure out who I am through that way. It's like, it's like I'm leaving a paper trail to my own psyche. It's, it's kind of weird. I don't know. I, it's hard to explain. But that's kind of where I'm at. And that's kind of why I've slowed down the input and started more focusing on output. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just trying to get in touch with myself, figure out what I want to talk about. Because, I mean, yeah, you know, I could go on stage and I could talk about a bunch of random jokes that I know would work and that I know would do well. But is that really what I want to say or have to say? What do I have to say? Because that's what's really important. I need to focus on what I need to say, you know? Not just, you know, what I know would work. So that's kind of where I'm at. Are you trying to set yourself up for the future? Like, where are your goals now? Because you're going to have quite a bit of free time on your hands in terms of at least three days a week when you have the mornings and such. Where are you going with comedy? What is, in six months, Johnny McKeon is doing what with comedy? Well... And Hopefully, can you do it in Salt Lake City? Yeah, yeah. No, I'll, I'll be in Salt Lake at least for the next year. I'm looking into some more video stuff. I'm thinking about maybe doing some YouTube stuff. I'm thinking about, well, like that, there's this, I'm, in, I'm talking with a guy about a web series. 
that he wants me to star in. I haven't committed. Mm -hmm. I'm debating it. Um, definitely just focusing more on stand-up and continuing script writing as well. Because, like, the more I write for stand-up, the easier it gets for script writing because, sure. like, most majority of my script writing, like, a lot of my jokes are just jokes from my act that, you know, don't really work necessarily. Because, like, absurdism, like, I like to think, I think very absurdist. And it's great for, like, a script, for, like, you know, a TV show where, like, guys are talking to each other, playing off each other. It's a lot harder to do on your own with stand-up on stage. Like, like have you ever seen that, that movie Step Brothers with Will I, Ferrell? I tried to, yes. Okay, yeah. <laughs> that would be a terrible stand-up act, but it's a great movie. For, for that purpose, like because that comedic principle. Improv, right? Yeah, well, it's also improv, and it's also just incredibly absurd. It's much harder, because you have to base a lot some of your stand-up in realism, or at least to juxtapose it against something goofy in order for it to be funny. So it's a little bit harder for me. So it's like, it's easier when, the more I joke write for stand-up, the, the better my scripts are. So I'm definitely going to be focusing more on script writing as well. And, you know, Sarah, she's finishing up her novel. I've been helping her edit that. Well, it's actually a novel we both wrote together, technically. What's the topic on? The novel? Yeah. It's a, uh, it's a teen romance novel. Oh, like boy. <laughs> CW30 style. It's amazing. It's actually really good. We should have her on sometime to talk about it. I would like to see Sarah uh, come yeah. in studio before the end of the semester. Yeah. yeah. I know that we're going to have uh, another couple of professors on. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Soon to be Dr. Stephen McCauley's going to yeah. come in. Yeah. Try really hard. To get get, I'm getting that set up for December, so yeah. We try really hard to get uh, soon to be Doctor Jeffrey Bennett yep. in, and we'll probably leave it at that. Maybe get. I'd love to mm -hmm. get Craig in. But. Yeah, I'm trying to get also uh, Mark Matheson. He does the My U Unique Experience, the Muse Project here at the U. Oh, cool! It's really cool. It's a good thing. Too. I'm gonna try to get him in as well. Okay. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna kind of pedal back with comedians. We've got two next week, and then slowly we're gonna kind of focus more on. Faculty, the U, and the U. yeah, the U, Bringing the U it itself, yeah, exactly. Bring it, thank you, Sasha. Perfect. You, I can have phrased that better. Bringing it back home, that's what we're doing. What about you, Sasha? What do you got planned for the next six months? My goal is to get very good at running a camera. Yep. And getting great shots. I, I expect myself next year going into football to start working a camera for a football game. So you see yourself long term at the Pac-12. I could see myself there for for 20 years. That's your career now? They are kind so of, yeah, good yeah. with me. If they could yeah. pay me. <laughs> Isn't that the, the eternal struggle, no, right? They are, pay, they are yeah. paying me. There's just no one in the Salt Lake Crew's gotten their checks for their last 17 games. Oh, wow. Right? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh, mistakes. Yeah, paper. Yeah. Uh, well, it's setting up in a whole new market. There's going to yeah. be a lot 12 of. markets. Yeah, exactly. Yes, thank you. Yeah. 12 markets. So it's a whole, yeah, it's it's an issue. Yeah. But it, it's a beautiful time. I I really want to try to sneak into a newsroom, uh, work 18 hours a week, whether it's at ABC or I think I kind of got offered a gig at Nice. But. Yeah, who knows? No. no. You got to shave your beard. <laughs> oh, shave my beard. <laughs> Wear a suit. Yeah. Uh, Contact. Jail in my hair. <laughs> All things that don't work out for Sasha. Yeah. yeah, it's funny. For me, I don't know. I try not to make as many goals because every goal, while I've had a very successful you know, life, every goal I've ever had has never worked out. Like So I just kind of more just try to focus on the moment, the day-to-day, -day, just do the best I can every day. 
and like try to push myself in a certain direction. But I don't necessarily have like a goal like in six months I want to be this or I want to be that. Instead, I just kind of see where I'm at and just go from there. I like to create a lot of options and opportunities for myself and then choose as I go. Because I've noticed like when I have like a systematic goal, it just I never really it never really works out. But it doesn't mean I necessarily fail. It just means a new opportunity has presented itself. You know what I mean? You know what I with Dr. Mangan in studio, she brought up this concept that with enough work and preparation, you can start your own newspaper. Exactly. I would love to find a crew and start a news organization. Like Vice Guide? Yeah. Yeah. I actually, because I remember, I really thought about putting an application in. I still have, think about it, I thought about it a couple of weeks ago, whether or not I wanted to do that. But then again, it's get, you get these camera guys cussing, and it's like, mm-hmm. I don't want to work with an organization that, and it, the dichotomy is so weird because they'll show a decapitated head, Yeah. but then I get mad when they use F word. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. You know, but I'd like to get into some of that uh, journal. I r- I'd like to get into investigative journalism. Gumshoe bloom it. So, yeah. You know? Yeah. But uh, we got time to figure that out. Yeah, I just, you know, I just want to make people laugh. Mm-hmm. And I don't know in what medium. You're making me laugh. <laughs> what what the is f- that? I don't know. <laughs> it's just playing. <laughs> That's weird. the The <laughs> Apple computer just started playing Sounded music. Like an ad. I don't, there's nothing. <laughs> I don't. It was it was the sleep screen. I was clicking out of the sleep screen and it started playing music. Whatever. Um, <sighs> two steps forward, one step back. Huh? Three steps back. Every time. Every time. <sighs> well with that yeah with that let's just call um, it at that um yeah, i gotta go finish moving yeah so. sasha we, yeah we gotta end the day a little bit early yep. um so you guys enjoy the interview thanks for listening yeah you can follow me on twitter at johnny mckeon you can follow sasha at mr underscore bloom you can hit up our facebook page at all you radio with johnny mckeon and sasha i cannot believe that happened what is what ah <laughs> uh, uh. another day another dollar the ghost of bill gates (laughs) steve jobs yes sir yeah thank you i heard you like to call yourself the devil's favorite demon (laughs) but you sir are no demon and the devil nah man I'd like to let you in on a little secret, man. You ought to be careful who you say those things in front of because you never know who might be listening.